Dan here. Welcome to Zero Ambitions, podcast about sustainability, the built environment and zero carbon goals. So this week we're with Marion Bailey. She's a partner at PDP London and a UK pioneer uh, in retrofit in its modern incarnation. She is the author of Residential Retrofit, 20 case studies, which is a seminal work in the UK, you know, part of the retrofit canon, if you like. It's a that book's a set of case studies, examples of low energy retrofit projects in residential building stock. So we came to know Marion I mean, through her reputation and because Alex has some sort of family connection to her. I think one of us saw her posting as well about the impact DPEs are having on the French property market. So we realised we really had to have her on. Uh, oh, and Alex had been reading a book. Needless to say, we are fans of her and her work. Before I get into the podcast as well, just wanted to give you a heads up that our erstwhile colleague, Sarah, has another podcast now. As part of her role at Best, she's been producing a retrofit-focused podcast called Accelerate to Zero. So I think that's on all the apps. It's definitely on Spotify and Apple. Um, we'll put links in the show notes. Give it a listen. Show the love. In terms of today's episode, you join us when we're talking about the book Le Mans Sans Fan, uh, a best-selling French comic book about energy, climate, and why the world is the way it is, and all sorts of other nonsense, because it's a comic book as well, Clint Eastwood, Yoda, talking dinosaurs, for real. We don't just talk about that. We go on to talk about the reprise of Marion's book, which is a look back 10 years later at 10 of those case studies which is being produced with Sibzi. It sounds like a really interesting project. I mean, there's lots to be learned. We talk about EPCs too, well, DPs, I suppose. But yeah, the main thrust, the real reason we got a run was for this book. I mean, lessons learned. That's why it says mistakes in the title. It's not really mistakes. That's why we added the question mark. Uh, there'd be mistakes if they made them again or did them again. So anyway, really, it's about progress being made, lessons being learned. Uh, we talk about heat pumps too, a lot. Uh, they've offered the, the biggest change in approaches to retrofit in the intervening time. Anyway, I won't keep banging on. I'll just let you listen to it. Yeah, enjoy, share, review, Passivast Plus, ACAN, ACB, IGBC, all the usual things. Cool. Cheers for listening. Bye. Oh. Oh, yeah, and it's all three of us this week, just in case you're wondering. I mean, we'll speak pretty soon. That is me, Dan, Alex, and Jeff. Yeah, I was I was in France last week. Yeah, last week, so I, I, I thought I'd, I'd get it. So there we go. I haven't yeah. read it yet. It's, uh, it's going to have be you, my, my reading list. Have you heard about this book yet, Jeff? Which book is this now? Can you can you read it out for us? Me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The French number one bestseller book in France last year. So that's uh, the world without end, I presume, is it? Yeah. And, it, yeah. and it's, it's all about energy and it's a bestseller book. It's incredible. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, energy in terms of energy efficiency. And yeah. it's particularly remarkable because it's it's a comic book. Like yeah. it's like you could call it a graphic novel, but that's just pretentious. 
Like it's a comic yeah. book and it is positive for it. And it's been a bestseller to the extent that I can't remember last time we spoke, which one of you said you've been at the train station. Yeah, yeah, me, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like it's everywhere. Co- yeah. yeah, copies of it being sold at the train station. Yeah. I know, it's baffling, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, presumably so, France has absolutely no problems whatsoever when it comes to sustainability mm. then, yeah? Everything is <laughs> perfect, right? Yeah. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> but, I mean, it does... Uh, signifies something quite different in the attitude. I mean, you know, it's not going to be this changing attitude or an evolving attitude isn't going to be amongst the whole population. It's without wanting to sound damning, it's the people who are prepared to buy a hardback comic book. Like, well, I don't, yeah, I don't know. All these French, dodgy French people with their their energy efficiency trying to make it accessible. Whatever happened to good, honest British heat loss, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, we are still the championing queen. the cause. For the dead queen, sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anyone. God. But it is, yeah. It's interesting because last week when I was in France, I, I met up with the architect who helped my my mum uh, <clears throat> renovate her house. And that was five years ago. And I, I remember at the time, I was already interested in all of this. And I talked to her about it. And she was like, oh, no, I don't, I don't know too much about it, etc. This time, she is all over it she's trying to build her own passive house and it just in the space of five years the fundamental shift and she was already Uh you know she was a really forward-thinking architect but at the time it wasn't um you know she well she does it for um, for individual people but yeah she wasn't thinking in those terms and now it's just been a complete shift and uh yeah we had a really great chat about how things have changed which has been quite cool amazing the reason I, I I contacted her is that when I'm I'm gonna be moving back to France in 2025. Uh So the plan is that we're going to try and build a small passive house where my mum lives, and then we're going to swap houses so she can have the nice modern house, which is easy to maintain, and we're going to have the old drafty house, which uh, easily goes up to 40 degrees in the summer and doesn't go above 17 degrees in, in winter. But, you know, Are you going to go through a period of living in the house, uh, Alex, before your mum gets it then, just to kind of really you know, uh, suffer the misery of, of having had something and lost it? Oh, as in the new house? The, the yeah. New... No, I think no. We'll just move her straight into it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I need. To, I mustn't. I don't want to experience such good quality of life. <laughs> be really hating where we live. <laughs> yeah, it'll be quite small as well. Yeah, like, well, it's it for w- one for one lady, so it's not a. It's not going to be gigantic. Mm-hmm. And um, Alex is freakishly tall. Remember, so yeah. it would be an un- uncomfortable place to. So that exists for him. The ceilings will be high because in front, I mean, everywhere, you usually have nice high ceilings. So. All right. Anyway, story for another time. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So just a quick rundown in terms of what we're going to discuss today. We're talking about, so we got you on to carry on the conversation about uh, EPCs or rather mm-hmm. DPEs, uh, particularly how in France, the DPE is being attached to property values in terms of the actual tangible value of the property and the seller's exposure to risk if they lie about performance, because that's the article. I'll let Alex introduce that because he saw the article that you'd posted, or we all saw it, but Alex reached out to you about it. We'd like to talk about the book you're working on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the the revised one, like this makes you an OG in the industry. Mm-hmm. You have been around for ages. And so this is an exemplar case of someone thinking about post-occupancy analysis in a long-term way. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It might be nice to talk about soft landings if we get an opportunity. All right, just by way of uh, getting things going. 
So I'll have probably said in an intro I'll record later, we're with Marion Bailey. So welcome to the podcast. Thank we're you. With, oh, pleasure. Marion, we've been speaking to you for a while about a bunch of things. But uh, yeah, I think we got in touch with you around the EPCDPE conversation that we kicked off earlier in the year. Because, I mean, Alex, do you want to... I didn't you throw BER in there as well, just to add a few more uh, bits of the alphabet in there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. confuse people further. Go acronym crazy. Go on. Well, I, I feel like uh, actually BERs... Oh no, in fact, DPE. They're all EPCs. It's just EPCs by... It's true. EPC it. is actually what the EU calls them. And the UK... Uh, uh, having decided to leave the EU, still uh, chose to keep EPC. Um, for anyone who's not heard the other ones, what does BER stand for, Jeff? Building Energy Rating. And Alex, DPE? Uh, Diagnostic de Performance Energetic. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got that right then. That's good. Um, yes, yeah, so it was basically we did a, an episode back in January uh, based on a, an article I found in a, a French magazine called Que Choisir that was talking about uh, the scandal around the DPEs in France, whereby they, I think they got, uh, they did a test where they asked uh, volunteers to commission five different uh, reports from five different experts on their homes. And pretty much all of them could not agree to the point where they were giving completely random recommendations such as actually removing uh, external wall insulation or, or putting something that was absolutely unnecessary. So that's an episode from January 10th, I believe. And Marion, we got in touch because I saw that you uh, shared an article from Le Monde. Yes, that's right. So I've just shared one in the chat. I'm not too sure it's the correct one. Uh, yeah, so I shared a, an article from Le Monde which was highlighting uh, the shortfall of the uh, DPE in France. Uh, but also, I looked into it a little bit further and it said that a DPE is now what they call opposable, which can be contested. So, for example, if an occupant uh, feels that the DPE has been um, wrongly given a, uh, for example, a higher letter, A, B, or C, and the actual performance is a lot worse than that, then they can take the seller uh, to court and try to get some damages to be able to retrofit the property to the ratings that they thought they bought the property at. Oh, so wow. that, that's quite that's quite a game changer um, for the industry. Uh, ultimately, this is to try to cover the the fact that some people are a little bit too generous in uh, giving properties a higher a higher letter. So uh, it's we know that it's it's more more than a you know a compliance tool than anything to do with energy modeling. Um, so this is why there is a massive discrepancy between a the EBC letter and the actual performance. So uh, we also call that a huge performance gap in the industry. And they, I, I don't think there is two uh, ways of comparing energy <laughs> demand in a, in a property that are have a widest gap into uh, performance than you can see with reality. Wow. And that's, I'm just tr trying to think through the implications of that. Surely it's going to mean that, uh, that uh, assessors are, are taking a very... Uh, cautious, conservative approach, and and uh, and you know, uh, in suggesting that the building is less energy efficient than it may actually be. 
you you think just for the sake of not getting sued uh perhaps perhaps but they they also have obviously the the pressure from the seller wanting to have a higher mark so i think it's the kind of it's probably a balance between getting the, getting the job done for the for your clients and not getting sued so <laughs> this is why epc is so flawed uh because it's so subjective that it can be manipulated and this is just so unreliable it's a proper it should, rock, rock and hard place situation for people yeah um and i should um uh, i should say um uh, in see in Ireland, and I think it's the same in the UK. Um, we assume with our rating, so the assessor will assume with an existing building, um, unless they have evidence to the contrary, um, they will assume uh, compliance with the building regulations from when the time from the time that the, the building was built. So the the installation standard will be assumed to be in compliance with the building regulations, and um, you know unless you've actually managed to access to get into the the fabric, you know to uh, to, to to see that that's not the case. And we know in Ireland, at least during the Celtic Tiger years, during the, the boom years, um, that all of the available empirical evidence shows that they were far from compliant. Um, yeah, yeah. So what a can of worms, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's just important to, before we get too far into it, to explain a little bit of why we heeded, or why we paid attention to uh, Marion posting this and uh, pay attention to it at all. It's because you're an OG in the space, like you've been around for quite a while doing serious work, and you produced one of the part of the sustainable building canon as well. Like that's one of your books, isn't it? Alex. Thank you. Oh no, no, I was I was going to ask you, uh, Marion, to introduce yourself um, because I think that's what we've missed, and it would be really good to hear more about your journey and uh, and, and who you are. So yeah, do you want to? Okay. Would you mind right. giving us a little bit of context about? Well, I was going to say sell yourself, show off a bit. Like this is a space sure. to do so. We're impressed. <laughs> so I think our audience. I mean, most of them will probably early, and them that haven't. I mean, they should be. So pay attention. So. Thank you very much for having me in the podcast today. Really, really good to uh, to be able to have a chat with you all and um, get the message out there about retrofit in particular. So, yeah, so I'm um, I'm an architect trained in France and Edinburgh as well. And I came to the UK more than twelve years ago, and um, sorry, twenty years ago. Time flies too fast. <laughs> And in 2009, after a few years practicing, I realized that um, that the um, the detailing and the installations on site were not really what I thought was great uh, uh, great alignment with energy efficiency and the the difference between the, the drawing board and the installation on site was too vast. And I thought I needed to I didn't know how to address this really. And um, I wanted to do more sustainable architecture, but I didn't know how. So I went back to university at uh, University of East London and did a master's in sustainability um, taught by Sophie Pelsmaker. Uh, He's fantastic. Uh, Also an author of a key publication in the industry. Uh, And uh, yeah, and that completely opened my eyes in particular on the passive house standard and I as soon as I found out about how it works uh it worked I I just I just couldn't go back to anything else frankly I just thought that was so robust there's a methodology 
there's the details, there is a proven track records, uh, what's not to like about it. So it really completely changed my views on construction. And so I tried to 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 implement that that sort of uh, technique. And at the same time, the government launched the Retrofit for the Future program, which uh, was all about retro, deep retrofits and saving 80% carbon emission in existing housing stock. Uh, so they funded 100 projects to experiment how we might go about doing this. So uh, I, uh, with um, other partners, won a, a contract for one of the house. And uh, we managed to get it certified to fully passive house. And having done a retrofit fully certified passive house uh, called Prince Dale Road, uh, that uh, eventually uh, kind of uh, was a springboard to go and write papers for conferences and then talking about it. And eventually they are the also where I'm looking for also to talk about sustainability. Uh, so I said, look, there is this in, amazing, uh, you know, wealth of work that 100 teams in the UK have achieved. And the government has published something quite anonymized for all sorts of uh, uh, GDPR reasons. But I think we need to do something much more in-depth. And uh, I'm willing to, <laughs> to to put my name on it and uh, and try to do something if you fancy supporting me. And I said, of course. And so that's how the publication on the 20 case studies of residential retrofit came about. And, and ever since, uh, yes. Yeah, it's attracted lots of interest. It's now a sold out book, and I'm looking to redo, publish a re edition of the book with uh, additional case studies and building performance evaluation lessons learned 10 years later. So Amazing. that's thanks to another grant from the government to, uh, to help us. They've sponsored us rather than a grant, it's a sponsorship uh, to, to look at 10 properties and yeah, find try to find out how they're performing ten years later. So sorry, it's a bit long winded, but yeah, that's sort of my career. I'm also obviously a partner at PDP London, which is a hundred uh, strong uh, staff practice, and we work primarily in London on large scale project and more and more on retrofits, uh, but historically primarily on existing buildings in central London anyway. I think that's fantastic. I have to say, um, Princedale, I'm well, I'm very familiar with Princedale Road as a project. We wrote about it uh, many years ago in the magazine. What an extraordinary project uh, to have been involved in. Uh, it's a Regency building, if I recall, or it's 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 a list, it's a protect a listed building anyway. There's it's a, a it's a Victorian building in a conservation okay. area. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, it's one of these buildings that uh, that the kinds of buildings that you're not supposed to be able to retrofit to very ambitious levels. Um, and as some of our listeners may know, um, when you deal with uh, uh, with existing buildings like this, where you can't, it's not going to be, you know, appropriate, right, to, uh, to wrap, uh, you know, Georgian, Victorian buildings and so on in external insulation. So who had the idea and, and how the hell was that approach to, to try and bring this up to full-on passive house, let alone just trying to insulate to reasonable levels, you know? Um, how, yeah. how, how did that come about, Marion? So I guess at that time, there was a complete um, 
focus on passive house in the industry, thanks to Wolfgang Fife's having come to talk about it in London. And uh, are there uh, key industry players such as uh, Peter Warm and other engineers who are really pioneer in implementing these principles? Uh, Robert Perrett also was already doing, had already done a retrofit uh, aligned with the standard. So there was a few case studies starting to bubble, but uh, with an engineer called Philip Prophet, and Jean-Pierre Wack, also an energy modeler, we uh, and and my training at university just on practically at the same time, we really wanted to push the boundary. And luckily, we worked with Octavia Housing, the social landlord, um, to take a property that was so run down and needed so much maintenance that it sort of justified a really drastic approach. So we we wouldn't necessarily have done exactly this in a property that had just been refurbished, for example. But we had the opportunity here. The staircase was totally rotten. Some of the joists needed replacement. There was like heavy structural work to be done in that house anyway. Okay. So we thought, okay, let's have a really, you know, a truthful approach to passive house and let's go for it. And basically we built a box in a box to enable uh, the performance to be met. Well, this is it. The reason I mentioned this is because that project would have would have happened not that long after um, in uh, Passivize Plus or the magazine uh, before we rebranded it as Passivize Plus. It was called Construct Ireland, and we published this sequence of articles by an Irish architect called Joseph Little, uh, uh-huh, a yes. pioneering uh, kind of building physics uh, uh, expert, um, and um, on uh, the, the sequence is called Breaking the Mold, um, and. Um, uh, he took uh, historic brick single leaf buildings, for instance, and uh, he—it's mad. These articles get cited. They nearly killed me to to edit. I have to say because they were so much detail in them, and and you know, very deep anoraki kind of stuff, really technical. Um, but um, he was basically showing that when you internally installate a single leaf uh, uh, masonry building like this, uh, especially like historic brick, there's a very high risk um, of of Doing damage to the building of of, of uh, causing mold growth behind the insulation layer um, because before you were insulated before that building was properly insulated, assuming you could heat it properly, uh, assuming you could afford to heat it, the heat that's getting into the wall was drying it out. Um, and now you were getting uh, if you got too much insulation, if if you if you limited the heat loss too much, the risk was that you were making it too cold and that the joist ends, for instance, in those um external walls would rot. So when I came across that project, I thought, bloody hell, uh, what's going on here? But the more I read about it, the more I saw that th- that this had been very carefully considered. So it's just it was a pioneering kind of groundbreaking project in so many ways to think about how to tackle these problems and and kind of stretch the boundaries of of what is possible in these kinds of buildings, you know? Yeah. I think there's also, um, you know, uh, in hindsight, I'm not sure we would do the same um, mm. type of retrofit now for several reasons. So obviously, originally, the insulation layer was made of a PR board uh, set off the existing uh, external walls. So there's a vented cavity, and that's where Joseph Little is so right in saying, you know, do not put insulation straight on on a brickwork and take the joists out of the brickwork. That's fundamental. So, so that that was totally uh, understood already at the time. Um, 
And uh, but you know it demanded some really intrusive measures like uh, installing a steel beam party wall to party wall to rehang the joists. Yeah. So that's not easily done in the house where you might be living in, for example. So I think that the things that I would change if I had to do the same house today is definitely the type of material that I would put into the house for two reasons. One is we're in a post-Grenfell world and PR flammable insulation is a straight no-no now. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we wouldn't use that. We would use, So therefore, we would use more a natural material, non-flammable class A, but also a vapor open materials so mm. that we can install the material on the brickwork. And like Joseph Fissel says, you know, you can, the wall is able to dry and the moisture can transfer from the external to the internal and vice versa. So you have moisture coming from both sides of the work, the, the, the wall. Yeah. Uh, so you need to enable the wall to why we call breathe, but it's basically vapor movement. Really. Well, uh, Joseph prefers sweat, and I think that's probably right. a, a, it's a better. It's a, it sounds a bit gross, but it's actually far better because people get terribly confused between breathability and yeah. air tightness. You know, it's, yeah. it makes much more sense as an analogy. Yeah, like it just works. To be fair, the, yeah. The the other thing also, which was a key driver at, at the time, was to reduce the demand right back down to make sure that the the use of gas was minimal, but now the uh, the ambition is not to keep the gas at all, is to make the property space heated via electricity. So it's electrification of space heating. This is the main focus. So that's another change from what we were looking at 10 years ago. Uh, so, so again, we wouldn't need to go to passive house necessarily on a Victorian property. We just need to go far enough to be able to make a SSE pump work. Okay. Uh, so so the, so we we've kind of yeah the, the sort of goalpost has changed slightly. And you, so therefore you wouldn't would you say that you wouldn't need to go like that idea of you know just to to make it clear to Dan and Alex taking the joist ends uh, out of the external wall in this steel beam which from memory was sat in thermal blocks sitting that's in the right. walls. Like that's that's prop this is heavy duty you know detailing um you're thinking of a lighter touch approach which wouldn't require that maybe because you've got yeah. a more sympathetic approach to how you insulate the uh the external right. walls and 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 slightly less uh less radical ambitions in terms of how far you need to take the fabric because of the decarbonizing yeah. decarbonizing electric electricity grid and stuff yeah just the use of the word detailing there sounds a bit misleading <laughs> that's that's <laughs> fundamental structural work well i say yeah yes <laughs> yeah i mean it yeah. might be i mean this this might there be was. my ignorance in the uh in this subject so, yeah are you able to tell us a bit about what you've learned uh, over the last ten years? Then, because I believe you've you've been back well, to some of these properties. Yeah, so so we're we're um, we're always learning, obviously, and you know, lots of uh, the the arrival of the RCC pump in the last few years is a game changer in the industry. That was totally not in the landscape ten years ago at all. Um, so so learning how to properly designed with an ASSC pump is really important. And now one of the key challenges, obviously, is to locate the equipment related to an ASSC pump inside an existing dwelling. Uh, people are precious about their space and making sure that, obviously, you can improve the fabric sufficiently to uh, to be able to make an ASSC pump work because, um, yeah, it gives you hot water at a lower temperature than a boiler did in your radiator. So you need to be able to have a better fabric 
to to work with a lower temperature. So uh, yes, you're you're right. We're looking at ten properties from uh, the original twenty of the retrofit for the future program uh, case studies in my book, and we are um, uh, we we haven't quite completed. In fact, just after the session, I have a meeting of two hours with all the case study um, uh, evaluators to feedback on their lessons learned. But we're already finding out that, for example. In Princedale Road, there is a, an MVHR and hot water cylinder system that's been there for 10 years uh, that has failed once in 10 years. So, you know, there was a little bit of a skepticism about the kit and the sort of um, new equipment that we tested at the time for the very first time. And we find that, in fact, an MVHR is just two very simple fans and they, they don't fail that much because it's just so simple. Uh, so the ductwork and the installation may sound complicated, but the actual piece of equipment is extremely simple. Mm-hmm. So that's quite reassuring for the whole industry in thinking, okay, um, it's not that, it's actually quite reliable. There's not that much that can break, basically. Yeah, That's yeah. right. And replacing a fan is quite accessible and easily done as well. And so... So and you have yeah. in Princeton, you had um uh, from memory um you you were bringing in the air uh, uh, below the, the the building into kind of a into the basement and and tempering yes. it um uh, yes. because the temperatures would be lower will be sorry higher down there um uh, or more more stable should we say um yes uh, to 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 kind of ensure that the air is neither too hot in the summer nor too cold in the winter when it comes in yes so it's a below ground labyrinth I'm not I'm. I'm pretty certain I would not replicate it. I'm not too mm. sure the gains of having it is so significant that it, it's it's making that much of a difference to performance of the house because the MPHR is close to 90% efficient anyway. Mm. So the heat that you, you have in your house is the most important. The, the, the air, the temperature of the air that comes in, you know, is a marginal difference. So you might have, a, yeah, you might have a tiny gain, but it's not so significant that I would say it's worth the effort. <laughs> yeah. Frankly. yeah. Well, at least you've done the work to prove that now, you know. Um, so people can go on with kind of a more of a cookie cutter approach to these things, you know, just um, mm. and that's which is going to make much more sense, you know. Well, I'm curious about how much uh, this may sound unnecessarily negative, but it's not how it's intended. How much failure are you finding? Like Jeff often mocks me and Alex because uh, gently and positively for saying getting things wrong is part of the process. It's the thing we often say to our clients, and it is an unusual thing to say because it admits fallibility and vulnerability at the start of a project. But you got to, because the only way you learn how to get things right is by getting them wrong in the first place. You learn out from your successes. It's only hmm. from your failures. So how open have people been to uh, exposing themselves in uh, building physics terms? Yeah, so I think. Um... As part of the exercise that we're looking at with these 10 properties, obviously, it's the it is this sort of uh, scientific approach in a way. So it's really transparent and, you know, people have been completely on board and all the, uh, the property owners who are part of the scheme have been willing to, you know, for us to find out and evidence. And they're also as keen as their whole industry to know what has failed so that they do not repeat this over their entire hundreds of other property within their stock. 
So it's very important that we find out what's not worked. Uh, so at the moment, the key issues is changing filters and making sure the MBHR properly maintained, balanced, and properly commissioned. Mm. Uh, that is definitely still an issue where people don't know where the filters are, don't know where, <laughs> where how to change it. Uh, something to bear in mind is also the cost of filters. Uh, so if you have to change them twice a year, for example, for a social tenant, it might be a burden. So it, it might be something that uh, social landlords might be better off taking on uh, maintaining themselves uh, if they want to guarantee that the properties have a good air quality. So what sort of um, price are you talking was that 15, it depends, 15, 20 pound a filter. But, you know, when you have two filters to change every six months, uh, for somebody on a low income, it can be a significant burden. So yeah, this yeah. is something that needs to be, I've got to yeah. remember, actually you've got a, a pile of filters next to me here. On the <laughs> we, 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 uh, we purchased some for our house, you know, it's, uh, it's yeah. yeah, I'm always surprised by the cost of, of the filters. So it's something you, that, you know. I, you live in London, do you as well? I live in London. Yes. Are you surprised at how uh, at the at the state of the filters then, in terms of the the uh, supply side? You know. Yes, I I I'm always baffled and pleased at the same time that I, we don't have to breathe this into the house. Um, yeah. I bear in mind that the filters only stop about fifty percent of uh, particles, so uh, it's only you know half better <laughs> but at least it's something that I don't have to breathe um I think also what we've learned is um making sure that in case the MVHR is off for one reason or another for example in one property there was electricity um tripped and the MVHR got switched off and they didn't think about switching it back on is making sure that they know how to open windows and that it basically, you know, in an airtight house, you will your walls will condensate, condensate due to most excess moisture very quickly. Mm. So it's about understanding also how it works when you don't have or when you have a power cut or you know all these sort of things that it means that you you know in in a house with MVHR you rely on your MVHR to give you a of fresh air. So when it's not there to do the job, what happens? And yeah, yeah. yeah. I, um, I just, just out of curiosity, um, uh, I've seen some people dealing with this issue of maintenance of heat recovery systems um, in, uh, you know, social housing or, or uh, in particular, but I think it applies to the private rental sector as well. Um, have tried, have experimented with designing the buildings so that you know i guess with new build it's easier uh, so that the mvhr units can be accessed uh from externally so you don't have to knock yes. on doors um yes. do you think that's a sensible idea are there pro- I, I i presume there's some cons potentially in terms of uh of the design of the system from an efficiency perspective and so on mm-hmm. potentially but uh, yeah you know. totally if you can design a new build in this way that's the best we've done it in a in a project where we had uh internal internal how do you call it um corridor in a in a sort of internal yard and all the MVHR faced the corridors uh so the sort of balconies so that the the landlord didn't have to go inside each of the properties to change the filters i hear in germany also what they do is they post the filters in the post Mm. so it's you know it's kind of a shared maintenance where the tenant will fit them uh, but it's the uh, landlord who will actually purchase them and making sure they're sent at the right time. It's interesting thinking about this. So 
this reminds me of the conversations we've been having on the podcast and with other people about soft landings, because this is a an instance of soft landings where uh, it's not just about learning about how the technology works and how to use, adapt your behavior to make, to live a more energy efficient life and improve your own comfort and uh, comfort levels within a home. It's about economical use of the systems. And it's not just the tenant that the burden is being placed upon. Burden's the wrong word, but I'm roll with it for now. Um, yeah, yeah, well, this is it. But the there is responsibility. Like the landlords, the asset owner, there's responsibility. And they need some sort of support in this soft landings. Like, to be perfectly frank, this is yeah. something I'd never thought about. I'd never thought about it in those terms. Mm-hmm. But suddenly it becomes abundantly clear. Like we, So we advise people uh, in terms of thinking about Investment upfront can help reduce your operational expenses uh, where your capital expense is higher. You know, you spend more on getting the thing right in the first instance, you spend less maintaining it. But this is an instance where like ongoing maintenance is something you really should be thinking about. And you should be thinking about it at the start and include it in your, like strategically yeah. planning for it in your capital expenditure once again. Yeah. But I would say for many landlords, it's still less expensive than a a gas certified engineer. Uh, right. You know, there is already maintenance in these properties with the gas boilers, and that creates significant issues that are very costly because these engineers have to be competent and certified. To yeah. change a filter, you don't need anybody to be certified in anything, frankly. This is like really, really easy. Yeah. Yeah. So the the other thing probably there is going to be with the air associate pump engineer. So hmm. uh, that's something that nobody's really tested at scale yet. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, how much maintenance these equipment demand. I guess probably not that much because it works a little bit like a fridge in reverse. And how often do you need a fridge engineer? Never. It, dep- it, depends, on, <laughs> it depends on whether you want your warranty to be, because a lot of the warranties would be linked right. to servicing, you know. Um, That's true. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, like in Ireland, um, I mean, I, I have taken this role on as the chair of the Heat Pump Association of Ireland recently. And, um, Round uh, of applause. No, Congratulations. That's commiserations. It's huge, <laughs> huge work, huge bloody workload. And uh, it's um, uh, it's very interesting, actually. Like we had this um, European uh parliament vote yesterday on banning refrigerant gases um uh-huh. which is going to pose all sorts of interesting issues for uh for the heat pump sector you can see loads of the heat pump brands thinking oh hang on a second i'm literally about to launch a new heat pump with uh with the you know, r32 it's one of the f one of the f gases you know this year or next year you telling me that i'm not going to be able to sell that from from 20 from start of, uh 2026 on you know it's um extraordinary stuff but um there are we'd have some members who have uh heat pumps installed even though you know there's a uh, neba the swedish brand of, of of heat pumps that should be uh giving attention to one or another uh brand with loads of loads of most of most of the, the big brands in the market we represent in this association but the guy who does neba um happens to have been have had the agency for getting on for 25 years um and i got contacted a while ago through the magazine by a Swedish fellow um, who was the, formerly the head of the Swedish Trade Centre in Cork, Niels Johansson, who'd put in, built a Swedish timber frame house 25 years ago and put in two Neva exhaust air heat pumps because big house. Um, exhaust air is even kind of regarded as a, a newer technology even among heat pumps. And this is 25 years ago. And they're still running. I think there was one com- component that need, needed replacing within those 25 years, but they're still running to this day, you know. Um, and um, 
so you know with with very little in the way of servicing you know so i think it, yeah they they can be if it's a good piece of kit and it's well designed well installed and and, and you've got a, a, a an owner who's not going to drive the crap out of it you know and is going to going to operate it properly they're they're very robust robust pieces of technology not to say that things can't go wrong because of course you know but then uh, you, you do encounter those issues where so it sounds like we're talking about private rent sector and social housing here in which case you have outsourced to maintenance companies who have a contract to look after these buildings one way or another, or the heating system. And then you enter encounter this issue that you described to me, Jeff. I can't remember who you said you were talking to. It was a guy who does maintenance. It might be the guy who does your building or someone like yeah, that. Who was, said, yeah, yeah. You what? So I've got to get all my guys trained up on every single one of these heat pumps if they were going to work on multiple buildings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know... That's the cost in terms of the actual cost of... And you know what? Some of the heat pump companies will say, no, uh, we have our own servicing people. Keep away, Mm. you know? Yes, yes. So this is is going to be disruptive, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. well, but, you know, people have to... uh, Yeah, it's it's business. uh, It's It's a climate (laughs) emergency, you know? (laughs) We've got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm saying you have to allow people to to make a business out of it. If there's good True. competition and they're fighting for the contracts, well, so be it. It's like yeah. it's going to be part of the landscape Absolutely. forward. As long as as long as you know we decarbonize or the housing stock, then you know that's that's the game. That's the aim that we should focus on. Yeah. Um, Could you also tell us a bit about what the feedback has been from the people living in these homes for, for the last 10 years? Have you, have you been able to, obviously, we've talked a bit about user experience and we talk about it a lot, but uh, what what is this, what has their experience like? Yeah, so um, I mostly super positive. Um, so far, I haven't heard any stories of something you know, of anybody wanting to move out of one of these properties because they didn't like it. And incredibly, they're almost all still in their properties 10 years on. Nobody's moved, which is incredible. So ah. we we have 10 years of feedback on leaving in these properties. And uh, the, does this include user. rentals? Does this include rentals as well? They're, they're all social housing. They're all social housing. Oh, Jesus. Wow. I, mean, I remember... Um, John, who is it again? John Lefebvre, is it? Um, from, um, uh, God, Afto, I think it was. Uh-huh, um, yeah. Talking about uh, lower void rates uh, in their passive house properties. Um, yeah. Um, and you've got you've got yeah. exactly that feedback. Yeah, That's absolutely. Amazing. I mean, I think he was also talking about that on the on the scale of on our, because of the uh, the lesser. Uh, cost of living impact that a that a low energy house has because you know your energy bills are so much lower you're unlikely to miss on your rental payments mm. so so that's 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 the big interest for lots of social landlords and they've all they all understood this 10 years ago already so like the city of Exeter you know has embarked thanks to Emma uh, and, uh, on the passive house journey because of that because it makes sense at the very on the very long term so yeah, no, what the the only thing, I mean, we, we're still going through the findings, so I can't reveal too much because I don't actually have every feedback from all the 10 properties. So watch this space, it'll be available on the CBD on our website by the end of April. But uh, most often the 
yeah, the servicing of the filters and the inventor and the fact that, for example, some of the social landlords kept sending a gas engineer in a house that had no gas connection at all because it's just an essence <laughs> or something like this. So, you know, it's the kind of alignment of because there's a lot of in the main in these maintenance teams, there's a huge amount of turnover. So oh, it's yeah. difficult to pass on the message because it's a one-off. So this is why we need to retrofit our mask. So instead of doing one trial here somewhere as a prototype, we need to kind of, you know, just roll out on a big scale each time. Uh, with all that thinking of, you know, user interaction and maintenance planning uh, embedded in it, absolutely. Well, um, I mean, it, it sounds like we're talking about big, large scale systems design and micro macro systems design and micro systems design that needs to be applied at the same time. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so how accessible are these findings to more ordinary people? Because what we've spoken about here so far, and what is usually the case in the rarefied world of Passive House, usually, not always, is people with big budgets who want to do great work, who were prepared to take the time and the effort and these are usually outlier cases. You know, not every social housing... Oh, like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Kubski, we met on the Scottish Housing News podcast. This is a reference to Andrew Kubski, who we guested on the Scottish Housing News podcast with. There's a link to the blog post about the podcast and links to the podcast in the show notes. They committed to Passive House and they've had to pause it because it's so new and they've got to learn so much about where they've got to so far. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of this stuff that's inaccessible to most people or sorry, no, that seems inaccessible to most asset owners, asset managers, asset developers. Like how accessible are the findings? How accessible are the lessons that you've learned that you're offering to people? So, so the, the building performance evaluation, um, exercise that we're carrying out on 10 properties will be available for free so mm -hmm. all the findings will be available to everybody now if the question is about how you know is it tailored and written for a lay person probably not this is not the intent the the intent of that exercise is to feed back to the industry what are the lessons learned 10 years later how you know is the air mm -hmm. tightness actually worked you know, and, and we found so far, yeah, yes, most of the houses have exactly the same air tightness or slightly above or slightly lower, but not mm. vastly different to what it was before. So have the air tightness taped work? Yes, over 10 years. You know, it's giving confidence in the industry in, you know, what is it that they should really invest in and what is robust and what should be changed. So, uh, so it's not really tailored for the sort of uh, private individual uh, to find out how to retrofit their homes. So there, there is a massive gap in the industry at the moment uh, to inform the, you know, the, the private individual into what are the steps to retrofit my house? Where do I get the funding? Uh, who are the contractors who can help me? Do I really need an architect, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So there is the um, National Retrofit Hub that's now being set up. So I think that will help for sure. Uh, but we need more of that and more initiatives to um, to articulate very clearly. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, how, how it all works. I was probably, thinking, sorry, I was. I, I'll let you go in a sec, Jeff. I was just thinking more of the the people within the industry who are 
who were just learning about this stuff now, who were mm-hmm. just trying to get up to speed on it. But I mean, you know, uh, that's not your audience. Your audience is the the people who are the way Alex and I describe it uh, in terms of in UX terms is you have noobs, people who are new to a thing, and the sophisticated users of a thing who've been using it for a long time, whether it's a website or uh, a, a campaign system. In this instance, yeah, you're pitched at the sophisticates, and that information then can trickle down. That makes sense. Jeff, sorry, love. Well, I was just going to say um, that um, on air on that, that airtightness point you made is fascinating, uh, Marion. Um, uh, and um, it's, it's probably worth qualifying that because these were passive house projects, um, there would have been very tight, or no, they weren't all. They're reference to future projects. Um, uh, I wonder how tight the control, the, the quality control was on the kinds of components that were used for airtightness. I'm thinking, for instance, of um, the first. Passive house built in Ireland, Tomás Solieri, uh, which was done in 2004, which passed its airtightness test um, at the time. But it was retested about 10 years after it was built. Um, and um, Tomás had noticed um, uh, drafts in one particular part of the house. Um, and sure enough, they went around with a smoke pencil when they were testing the building and they identified where uh, that there was, uh, it failed its test and there was high leakage occurring in one particular area. So they peeled the wall back. And they found uh, uh, duct tape had been used instead of the uh, air tape. In these cases, like the lads who were doing the work had run out of the, the proprietary tightness tape mm-hmm. um, and had used another one, which held its adhesion at first, but eventually lost it, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, but I just think these, are, these yeah. are risks that need to be kind of managed, aren't they? That, yeah. you know, the, the, the quality of components that are used, like early, early on with this stuff, probably... You know, there would have been a, a handful of suppliers who were who were involved yes. in these kinds of projects. And as it grows, one of the risks we we have, I suppose, is like it's great to have more supply coming in, more options, of course. But there's there's going to be a risk, if, especially if the kind of people involved in it are not uh, as uh, as obsessive or whatever is into the into the detail of it, that um, that people are trying to find ways to do it cheaper and and that's sure. a good you know uh, so yeah i don't know um but, yeah, but think, it's very heartening yeah no i'd say the market in this uh, has definitely matured in 10 years a huge deal just because the um energy efficiency requirement of for the new build construction is so much uh, better nowadays and they use the same material that you would use in a retrofitting way so i think they're there's more and more contractors who are um, cognizant of all the uh, products that need to be used. So I think we've definitely, definitely turned the page here on knowing nothing to really getting to to be much more familiar with all these uh, air tightness tapes and grommets and, and ventilation system. There isn't a new build now that hasn't got an MBHR pretty much, uh, uh, at least on, on uh, apartment blocks. Mm. So, uh, so you know, MVHR ten years ago, nobody knew what it was, and nobody could pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think we've we've moved on from this a great deal. So I think we're the the, the newest thing really is uh, understanding moisture. I mean, I'm talking about retrofits, and you know that's where Joseph Little is so fundamental. And I'd recommend anybody to go and train with him and read all all his literatures. Um, but yeah understanding moisture so that buildings don't fail in the future we can't afford to have um you know uh to create adverse consequences of retrofits uh badly thought through so that's really important 
and learn also how to uh, properly design and store commission and maintain the assets we've done ourselves. And there's also a lot of reticence about their noise and the location of them. Mm. Uh, there are several people also in the industry trying to think about um, other systems such as phase change materials and something that can replace your boiler, something that's much lighter. And there's a Senam system, which is uh, 150 kilos, which I, I haven't got great knowledge on, to be honest with you, so I can't recommend it or criticize it that much. But, you know, there is um, prototypes and thinking in, in the industry to try to move away from the SSU pump, which a lot of people think is going to be too uh, bulky to fit anywhere or too noisy. Uh, so, but to my mine right now from what i know about this technology i can't see any other piece of equipment that is so efficient that for one unit of energy it gives you three or four back i don't there's nothing that matches it on the market mm. right now so mm. uh, i i will remain <laughs> confident that the SSE plant is the right way to go yeah the, the thing that um and the members of my association will probably be um calling from my head at this but uh, a few weeks ago we had um on the podcast we had john moorhead the irish uh pacifist architect um and he, he does a lot of expert witness work on buildings going wrong as well um and he was describing a scenario that she's experimented with in anything from passive houses to his own uh, kind of period building uh, office, uh, an office building in, in Cork, which is he described it with a basket case when it came to energy performance um, uh, with, uh, and I have to be very careful about this because there's snake oil in this area too, uh, infrared. Um, and he was interested in the, in the combination specifically of, for instance, a heat pump to keep the temp, to bring the temperature of the building up to a certain level. Um, oh, in a passive house, you could do it another way, of course, um, just through just through retaining the heat, and then uh, so bring it up to a certain to, to high enough level that you don't have concerns, um, maybe about about uh, you know dew point or, or whatever, perhaps, um, and um, and then localized uh, comfort heating uh, using you know using infrared, and um, it's, it's 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 you don't have the it's just a one hundred percent efficiency rather than three hundred percent, of course, is the is, is the issue, but um. But uh, and you need to know where people are going to be sitting in the buildings, or you know where they're where they're going to be using it. Um, but it's just, it just seemed like an int- a fascinating little thing that I'll be watching with interest to see how that develops. You know. Yes, I wonder. You know, you talked about. You know, we are in a climate emergency, and we need to do everything we can. We also need to think about embodied carbon, and we know that uh, MEP equipment are hugely intensive in and carbon intensity. So uh, we need to be wary of you know, multiplying systems in a building. Yeah. Uh, so if you have an SSC fund, but you want to double it with lots of heaters, I would say do your whole life carbon first and see, oh, see how it all yeah. stacks up. <laughs> no, exactly. And I think he was talking about this as, a, as an alternative to, because uh, it's interesting, there is there's some good French data emerging on uh, embodied carbon to building services through the the, the, the product eco passport database. Um, uh-huh. And um, uh, what John, I think, was talking about was a scenario where, you rather than adding existing radiators, for instance, adding two, ex, you know, adding new radiators, two existing radiators in a, in a retrofit with a heat pump, um, uh, you would be maybe adding some of these uh, IR uh, infra, infrared heaters. But uh, yeah, it, it's it, it's it is it's a fascinating one, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, again, it comes down to systems design, like what's yeah. appropriate for the structure you're working within, like what's yeah. going to be the least impactful in terms of embodied carbon and operational carbon. All of these calculations need to be 
put together. But again, in terms of accessibility, the capacity to be able to make those assessments needs to become more accessible. I think what's been really heartening about this conversation and partly why we're talking to you, Marion, at all, is because, I mean, this sort of evaluation, like you, this book sounds pioneering in its own way, like going back to look at projects, prior retrofit projects, rather than just continuing to load them, look for where they've gone wrong and publicize it. And I'm really curious as to how how much further this can be pushed and how it can be made to affect the rest of the industry. Because looping back to where we started the conversation with the way things have moved in France. So increasingly, energy assessment through the DPA system is beginning to impact asset values. And then when you create this, this additional legal exposure to the asset owner in terms of if they sell it and it ain't performing like they say it is, uh, they can be sued and there will be other people throughout that chain who are going to be exposed to that risk, not just the asset owner, because that's how the legal system works. Isn't it? I just wonder how this is going to play out. I wonder how soon this might hit these shores as well, because, you know, it's an exemplar situation in France. I don't know. What's your what's your opinion on these matters? Well, I mean, it's, of course, it's going to impact um, uh, our shores in terms of the rental market first. And we hear in France also, I think that's that's that was the article that I shared on LinkedIn that Alex um, you, you spotted was more about um, the uh, landlords dumping their stock on the market uh, very quickly and trying to get rid and is you know find their, an exit route <laughs> before they lose their entire asset uh, at at 50p. Uh, so I think it's it's definitely going to happen here. Uh, the also the big difference between the UK and the rest of Europe is we have a much older stock than in Europe. So in Europe you might have more much more stock with double glazing. Uh, well, here you have to start from even a you know a a, least, a lesser performing building that that most of the European stock has. Uh, it's also mostly easier to retrofit from the outside in Europe because you have more rented buildings than exposed brickwork. Uh, so you know, there's, there's key differences uh, where you know maybe in France right now you can't rent a property with an EPC of G uh, in 2028, an EPC of uh, DPE of F, and uh, yeah, it's starting to be quite impactful so i think it's it's the same is going to happen here of course i mean we already have the key dates uh for uh industries in the rental industry uh so so for sure for sure the same is happening here what's the big difference though is the the stick uh in france for example as a case uh is also coming with the carrot so you have a lot of uh, <laughs> of incentives to retrofit where you can get uh, two types of subsidies uh, or grants actually, um, and also a zero percent interest loan. Um, I have to say I've tested my own French bank to this uh, exercise uh, just last week. And, and they said, yes, of course you can have up to 7,000 euros of zero percent interest if uh, you want to do some work. In, a, in an existing house uh, where I just think it's obviously related to energy performance. And, you know, we need, we need this here. <laughs> we need this in this, in this country to kind of uh, embark. 
there's also the the elephant of the VAT uh, in the UK, where you know you still have twenty percent on Windows. Windows is the number one thing that you know people should start with. If they can't do anything else, if they have single glazing, that's the absolute you know first step. And we, we you know it's still a twenty percent here. So if we're serious about reducing space heating demand, that's what is that for the residential stuff in the UK. We've, we've got to start addressing these uh, incentives, subsidies, grants, uh, VAT issues, tax credits, whatever. <laughs> we've got yeah. to make it much more attractive for people to, 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 to do these destructive works. Yeah, there seems to be a reluctance. I mean, we say this all the time in the UK in particular. There's a reluctance to support this sort of change because we love overconsumption. It's a, a really... You know, that strong driver of GDP, etc. It's it's interesting how we like creating loopholes in this country, though. Like there was the one we were talking about uh, a little while ago about a person you spoke with who'd who was looking to create a business based on one of those. I mean, I'm saying loophole like it's a very negative thing. And to my perception, it was. But like there's a as a I don't know, I suppose, uh, yeah, as a landlord, there is a limit on what you have to spend. Is that right? Or in terms of obligation? In the UK, yes. So over £10,000, you can be exempt uh, from from doing more than that, as long as you do the £10,000, which, uh, uh, yeah, I think is is a loophole that should be... um, avoided of course i think it creates a it's just distracting to be honest with you it's really distracting it's it's throwing a spanner in the works of of good work of good you know at the end of the day we're talking building physics is that energy to keep people warm and how much of it and how little you know how much you we have to reduce it to reduce the carbon emission and and that means that if we do it with low carbon energy, such as SSC pump using renewable, um, uh, we've got to do it in a fabric that can work with lower uh, temperature hot water, uh, because the SSC pump again produces hot water forty degrees as opposed to your boiler at sixty degrees. So you need to change a few things in your in your home to make the to to make it work. Uh, so yeah. So, Giving yeah. people a, a a ten grand limit. Spend ten grand and you're off the hook, pal. Yeah, you do, ten yeah. grand. Spend it on anything, it's, whatever it, you like. It might work on properties, but if you are in a conservation area in a in, you know in a cottage, uh, you're going to find it quite difficult to. I mean, by by the time you put twenty percent back on your windows, <laughs> yeah, uh, just replacing your windows uh, might slow your budget. <laughs> so, you know. That doesn't get you far enough, I don't think. Yeah, I received an estimate for our house for triple glazed windows to try and improve that because, I mean, they're they're all blown and leaky. Oh, man, it was a sharp intake of breath when I saw that that total. Then the total didn't even include installation. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting, though, in the industry now is that triple glazing gets very, very close to the price of double glazing because... They, their factories are set up to produce, obviously, uh, you know, window frames en masse. And if they have to constantly change between triple and double, it's really disruptive for them. So they're just gearing to their production lines to triple place. 
And if you want double, you have to pay more. <laughs> so well, I, yeah, that's it. You know, that that's the sort of positive. Of, uh, I, I think part of the problem take. might be just how many windows I've got in my house as well. Like the form uh, factor is appalling in some regards. It's quite a, a blocky building, but so many windows, man. It's astonishing. Just board them up. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm gonna have to leg. I'm gonna have to leg it in a second. So sorry for that. That's why. Otherwise, I would have been chipping in and and saying um, annoying things as usual. But um, yeah. Um, I don't know if we should wrap up now or or not. Yeah, yeah, we can wrap up. I think we've got at least an hour. Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, Marion, you, uh, I, I really enjoy. It. Normally, I hate doing this. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything you want to? out there that you haven't had the opportunity to or is there anything you want to plug like that you've appearances talks webinars anything going on that uh you want to let people know about because to be perfectly frank uh there's loads more stuff that we could talk about i just didn't want to open another can of worms i think we've sure i mean i think watch out for the cbz and the pdp london website for the publication at the end of april on uh on this uh, key lessons learned from revisiting 10 retrofits built 10 years ago uh we think it's really going to be immensely useful for the industry to avoid making some mistakes and also learning from what has worked so definitely watch out for this um and yeah otherwise uh you know keep on learning on the retrofit uh uh, skills. Uh, there's lots of training courses all over the UK. Uh, we need to retrofit our math and we need, we all need to go back to the drawing board and learn again how to do this properly. And, and it's, you know, all the people who have embarked in this retrofit journey, which just never go back and find it absolutely fascinating because at the end of the day, it improves their own home and they can understand so much better their own environment in any of the buildings that they uh, occupy so that's 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 really inspiring oh all right thank well you. brilliant well thank you for joining us that's been great um and uh it's worth giving marion a follow on linkedin you're always posting and there's lots of interesting stuff hence us having this conversation well all of these conversations um all right brilliant well cheers uh thank we'll you for having me pleasure to speak to you all Cool. Thank and you thanks Thank for you. listening. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening. Anyone listening, please like, share. If you like it, I'm sure you know someone else who probably will appreciate what we're doing here. Um, yeah, please review. Uh, join ACAN, join the ACB, join the IGBC, etc. All the usual things. Uh, and Passive House Plus, check it, subscribe, uh, advertise. Cheers. All right. Bye. Bye.